Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Well, lockdown in Melbourne is over now, but the Living Free Show won't be returning to 3CR studio until early February 2022, so we'll continue pre-recording our show for you till then. Today's guest is a compulsive gambler, and he's been on the show a couple of times before over the last few years. Uh, I'd like to welcome Grant to the show. Hi, Grant. Hi, Bill. Nice to be back. Good to see you again. Grant, you've been recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous for quite a while, so would you like to tell us a little bit about your gambling story? and how you ended up going to Gamblers Anonymous to seek help for your gambling addiction. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill. Look, in terms of identifying as a compulsive gambler, which I do, uh, given I'm a member of the fellowship, my, my gambling really came about through an inability to identify and express my emotions in a mature way, or in any way, for that for that fact, there was uh, I had absolutely no idea what was going on, and and the short of it um, is I chose gambling as a, as an, a tool of escape and, and avoiding dealing with those emotions. So it was really a just a very poor maladaptive coping mechanism. So how long did you gamble before you came into Gamblers Anonymous? It was a long time before I reached rooms. That's for sure. I mean, a fish, I mark it down as starting at 18 um, and I didn't actually find the rooms of GA um, until I was just, yeah, 31 years old, actually. That's right. So um, it took me quite a long time um, and I also went through a lot of pain and suffering um, and during that time frame before I was lucky enough to reach the rooms. Yeah, so sort of growing up, you know, if, if you sort of see yourself starting around 18, was there anything else that led you towards gambling? In, in terms of my story, I mean, it certainly it all, all stems around adoption and trauma around rejection and abandonment and fear of not being loved and, and unworthiness, um, which is certainly not uncommon um, amongst those that are, that are adopted. I mean, I could have chosen anything. I mean, there were other behaviours that presented back then as a, as a young adult too. I think given my heavy involvement in sport, um, I'm very analytical by nature, very good with numbers. And then again, also, I, I also had no acumen regarding um, money as well. So I had a very poor relationship with money even back then. It had held very little value. So all those things really contributed to me heading down a path of behavioural addiction. Yeah. So did you suffer trauma in your youth? No, not in my not in my youth. I mean, this was all based around a lack of identity. And again, when you're uh, given I was adopted into a, as I said before previously, another interview, you know, I, I'm of part Maori, part Scottish descent, but adopted into a, a Caucasian family and without knowing my background and being very different different physically, emotionally, and, and in other ways that this real lack of identity um, really uh, was brought to the surface. Did you suffer during childhood through friendship problems or were you able to make friends? Look, I, I didn't. I was, even though I was a very quiet kid, uh, I, I was quite popular, uh, I guess, through my success um, in the classroom and outside the classroom on the sports field. So I did have a lot of friends. But the truth of it is, even in those early formative years, the, the real close friendships weren't actually there. There were, there were friends for sure, but 
you know, in terms of that best friend or a number of best friends, they they actually weren't there. Mm. So did you suffer, did the family in which you grew up have any problems? No, we didn't. You know, we're very, uh, brought up in a very working class family. Like what one parent who worked the other um, minded, um, minded us, um, myself and my brother. And look, you know, there was certainly, I've certainly identified that from an emotional perspective, perhaps some of my needs weren't met uh, through no fault of anyone else's other than their own experiences playing out. But there were no significant trauma events in, in, in my childhood other than breaking leg at three and, and not being taken to the hospital. And, and it is actually relevant to my childhood trauma. And also having a parent suffer uh, a very serious illness at a very young age as well, and, and maybe taking on some additional responsibility and seeing some of that trauma play out within the family unit. But beyond that, I was very lucky to have, I, I believe I still had a very good upbringing. So what was your introduction to gambling? My earliest recollection of gambling uh, was being with my paternal grandfather um, at a at a race course. I think um, he had taken me there one day. My recollection is sitting in the grandstand with him and looking at a form guide. And I do recall he did place a, a bet on my behalf, um, even a, a, at that very young age. And even to this day, I still remember the horse, you know, the name of the horse. <laughs> of course, of course it won uh, as well. And I think, you know, that is my earliest recollection, but there were also um, you know, other, I would term gambling type activities in terms of gaming um, machines as well, like arcade game machines. Um, as a youngster that I would have visited a say on a, on a holiday you know, excursion as well. So there were bits and pieces like that that occurred um, at a very young age, but no, no gambling as such within the immediate family unit. Yeah. So what did you start gambling in? Look, I, I actually started off in sports and that very quickly yeah, moved towards uh, the horses, uh, greyhounds and trots. And look, even from there, it wasn't too long before I found the share market. The share market, I was looking at IPOs um, quite early on or late in my teen years and um, in my early 20s as well and really ended up becoming almost all forms all forms of gambling but the ones that really took me the most were, were horse racing greyhound racing and harness racing okay so sounds like you didn't do any underage gambling was that right no underage gambling but there's certainly activities there that that really do put down a marker for um, the same type of thrill or excitement that fake high of gambling and other activities yeah, it's, it's kind of like even even from the perspective of say playing marbles as a kid and, and winning other people's marbles. I mean, I, I do relate that you know to gambling activity as well. It's all speculative, whether for money or not. Yeah, yeah. So, what is it about gambling that makes it addictive to you? It was addictive to me. I mean, it's it's not today. It's Again, it, it really, for me, it was just the pure escape away. And it, I guess the chemical reactions in my body too, the dopamine uh, release, it just really kept me in that pleasurable state. So you know, I, I can't even sit here and say whether or not I actually loved it or not, because I don't really know. Um, there are aspects of it, yes, but because of those neural pathways being so conditioned to continue on and on, to suppress the, the emotions. That's the real experience that, you know, that I, I can articulate today. So not, not the, the love nor hate for it because I'm, I'm in a position of neutrality today. Yeah, I've heard other people explain it as sort of zoning out, just going into a completely different, into a, into a bubble, if you like, where nothing else is important. What's it like for you? It was like that. I mean, I was... A closet gambler. So I, so if, if I decided to go to a venue to gamble, I would generally have headphones in, and and I'd have nothing playing. Um, it was more more to create a bit of a diversion for myself to say, well, I, I don't want to be known here. I don't want to speak to anyone. 
you know, I just want to be in my own little dream world, placing bed after bed. So that that was the way I went about it. It was never never a social thing. Again, that still points to more um, avoidance and escapism. Yeah. You mentioned before the sort of technicality of gambling. So were you a form guide person? <laughs> not, not at all. I mean, there were times where I, I think I, I tried, you know, I was a, a really tragic favourites punter. Yeah, for me, it was, yeah, I would say 90, 98% of the time, definitely not a form guide person. It was really just being in action and this, this continuation of suppressing all the things that are going underneath that I just didn't even want to come out close to the surface. Yeah. I've also heard people talk about once they'd put on a bet, they could relax and they, they weren't interested in the outcome. They were interested in putting on the bet. What was it like for you? Yeah, I've certainly had that, that experience as well. Again, you know, I can identify, as it's commonly said with others, that just the, the sheer thrill, excitement or the relief of being in action uh, was, was very true at times. I certainly don't understand all the brain chemistry of it, but yeah, I've certainly felt all, all of those things during my gambling career. Yeah. So where did your gambling take you? It took me to a lot of, uh, a lot of very dark places, uh, very dark, lonely, isolated places in the end. And it certainly uh, took me to a place where the destruction was rife as well, whether it was more myself first and foremost, you know, inside out, I was just rotting away. Again, undiagnosed at the time, I mean, it was, I was developing a lot of anger and resentment and, and, and rage and you know, all of my relationships, you know, relationships suffered, work certainly suffered. Even my other, other aspects of life, recreational activities, there was absolutely no part of my life that wasn't affected um, by my progressive uh, illness relating to, to gambling specifically, but other behavioural addictions as well. Yeah. So was anybody concerned about you? Well, I think people were concerned about me, but you know that was never really, it wasn't spoken of until I'd say probably my late, um, late 20s. And I think people, um, you know, people that did say things didn't really know um, how to help. But I, I also recall at that time too, I was in complete denial. And again, that would trigger off a, a reaction within me to want to disengage and, and, and invoke anger um, as well. So um, unfortunately, when you're dealing with someone who's not prepared to even acknowledge, there's, there's, there's not a lot that can be done at that point. Yeah, the, the denial is a very strong emotion, I guess, because it just pushes away. It it doesn't it doesn't allow any dialogue on it because it's not the problem. That's right. And so, I mean, I mean, you know, I certainly identified as being part of the grief cycle. And, and there's no um, this in my experience, there's been there's no stages um, set stages in that grief cycle. It just went round and round and round um, and interchangeably with all the with all the stages that I identify with and yeah I, I, I'd certainly resonate with what you just said. Mm. So what what was the trigger that got you to look for help? <laughs> My life was completely unmanageable, and I think I'm what I'm doing here is making reference to my introduction to GA. So that that occurred in May two thousand and thirteen and. You know, I had just lost a lost a job, and I was by myself. I think yeah, I was single at that time. But again, I just felt the desperation of a drowning drowning man. I had absolutely, you know, a, a, a small breeze would have blown me over. That's how I kind of felt. I felt like a broken down dog and just a lot of despair. So i didn't have that 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 employer that i lost that uh the job i lost the employer actually helped me and directed me to a psychologist first and i, I don't know the i, I can't re recall the exact process by which i found ga but i believe that i just looked it up um, on the web called a number spoke to a woman who 
um, asked me a few questions and directed me to a physical meeting in Victoria. And I turned up you know, on that night at that time. And, and that became my first, you know, my first step you know, into, a, into a meeting of Families Anonymous. Mm. So what was it like at that first meeting? I don't recall too much, but again, my narrative around this has always been, <laughs> I know I was a blubbering mess when I did share and I did have the courage to share on my first night. But I, I do recall being greeted very, very warmly, lots of outstretched hands and lots of people interested um, to have a chat. And I do, I do recall feeling like I belonged, belonged in that room with those people and I identified um, a lot with what, what they shared. And there were some messages that came out of that meeting, you know, in terms of keep, keep coming back. And, um, and those are the words that are often, often mentioned um, in, in, in any fellowship meeting, but especially within Gamers Anonymous, which I've got a lot of experience of being involved in. Yeah, okay, thanks. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. To understand the absence of a man He's long gone Before he even packed to go A little darling Didn't even know Look at her Little darling She's in a bad way
and our first song was uh, Little Darling by Lauren Ryan, uh, and it was off the First Sounds Volume 5 album, and it was courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Victoria, as we get ready to get back out there, you need to get your COVID-19 digital certificate ready too. First, create a MyGov account if you don't have one. Then, make sure your Medicare and MyGov accounts are linked. Then, add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Then, get ready to go. Your vaccination is your ticket to everything you love and miss. For more on adding your vaccination certificate on your smartphone, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today I'm talking with Grant and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Grant, before the break, we were talking about, you know, just your introduction to Gamblers Anonymous, and you mentioned that you identified and you felt that you belonged. So was it easy to stay in Gamblers Anonymous once you had that identification? Look, it was, it was easy to stay, but in terms of actually experiencing recovery, that didn't occur for quite a long time. Like I, I did find myself really struggling not that I would have been able to admit that at the time when I first came and, and even through a period of maybe four years, it was, it was what I would call white knuckling it, abstinence in its very lowest form, uh, you know, form of quality. And there were you know, many, many relapses within that time as well. Do you want to explain white knuckling? Yes, <laughs> I'm happy to. It's just a, a struggle. My experience has been... You know, come, coming in, say, at 31 and, you know, you walk into the program, there is literature, there is people sharing stuff. There are many, many suggested things you can do. And early early on, largely, you know, I was just turning up. Um, and I don't know whether or not if that was on time or late, if I was sitting at the front or back. But what I do know now, um, looking back at that time, is that, you know, I, I wasn't, showing any real signs of, of authentic recovery that was going to hold. Did anybody express anything to you about that lack of enthusiasm? Well, look, I mean, we found a little bit. It certainly wasn't a lack of enthusiasm because, yeah, I don't have any trouble certainly getting up in front of people and talking. But then again, the amount of times I would have got up there and talked absolute nonsense um, and just this continuation of certain narratives that, were keeping me not in a, not an addiction mode, but maybe an abstinence, but not not authentic recovery. I, I had absolutely no idea as to what my real trauma map really looked like at that point in time. I was merely an, an attendee of GA, doing the best I can with what I knew, which really wasn't a lot to be honest. I was still very much a very fearful, scared little boy underneath the veneer of an adult participating in fellowship meetings yeah i'm sure there's a lot of people who are like that because it is it is such a such a change to go from the isolation and, and being all about you to start realizing that it's it's got to be about living not about existing and living means being out there and doing stuff look underpinning that for me it's it's my it's the thinking um, but what really needed to change was my was what's going on upstairs. 
And I think I did say this very, uh, said this explicitly in our last um, in our last interview that unless you have a complete change of mind and mindset, um, there's actually very little chance of recovery. And I've certainly experienced that. I've kind of needed to do a complete scraping out of the barrel of all of the crap um, that's been sitting within, that's been un, um, that was undiagnosed and untreated, and purge all that stuff and think very, very differently about myself um, and and the world that I'm just a very tiny speck in. Yeah, I've heard um, a spiritual awakening described as a change of attitude sufficient to overcome the effects of the compulsion, the addiction, uh, and that resonates with me because it is about, you know, I've often heard AA people say it's it's not my drinking, it's my thinking that's the problem. The thinking leads to the drinking. And as you say, it, it's about the way we think and the, the fear and the resentments drive us to do crazy things. So how did you sort of cope with busting and, and you know, gambling and then coming back was that did that sort of resonate with you as oh this shouldn't be happening look yeah it's a a really good question given that I was a serial buster it just got it just kept on building you know when you can't really put it together and you don't really know what you're doing and why you can't start stop and stay stopped it's commonly said and I'll say it here I, I just became increasingly sick and tired of being sick and tired Look, I'm hitting, I guess, what I want to say next is that it, it took for me to see someone in a meeting who was sharing a message in such a way that I'd never heard before. This person this person spoke with a real enthusiasm. It's, it felt like it, it, it looked like and felt like uh, an authentic enthusiasm and a message of being happy, joyous and free. And they were talking about trauma um, and uncovering was at this next level of honesty that I just hadn't seen in the fellowship before. And I really hated this person. I, I really did. I just thought, oh my God, you are you know, an expletive, expletive. And I just, I don't resonate you, but something within me knew I need to latch on to this person. And I need to find out how they got it because I want what they've got. Um, and that was the beginning of, you know, a, a spiritual awakening because I, I did see a way through all of the things that were going horribly wrong for me in all areas of my life. So what did that look like for you then? What did you do? Well, you know, this was four years into the fellowship and, you know, I'd taken a redundancy um, at, the, at the end of Christmas, I think December 2016, uh, decided to take six months break. And I, I had a trip, a couple of trips or a few trips overseas planned. And when I, when I came across this person, I just said to him before I leave, let's make a contract. You know, I want to be bonded to you. And I think he said to me, um, you know, as, you know you, you're going to need to do everything I tell you to do, basically. And he said to me, which is not coming from my playbook, it is just something that's been passed down from person to person. And it just happens to be, the path of recovery was called the arch to freedom, which is largely done within the, what well, is done within the Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship. So effectively, Bill, I, I did the steps with it, with the sponsor um, under AA guidelines, arch to freedom. And I just did everything that the authors had said, which was read certain text, uh, write down certain questions, write down the answers, um, listen to certain audio, and then share every single word that I wrote with my sponsor and vice versa. And that just happened to include some really deep searching work that lifted the veil and showed some common behavioral problems and reasons and feelings and fears behind it that I was able to put together with at that point in time, four years worth of experience with a psychologist too. So it was a big, big double whammy coming together of, of step work, which unlocked my understanding of my psychology sessions 
and it's true as as a result of doing the steps and the other things i, I did have that spiritual awakening yeah the psychology work is quite similar to recovery uh 12-step recovery but it, it just has a different i guess a different focus of using things like cognitive behavior therapy and things like that that to trigger it but yeah the, the 12 steps have got the same the same thing embedded in them it's a matter of accepting that which path you are most likely to take you know what's the easy what's the easy path for you to take that that will get you there without too much damage i guess i've certainly needed both and my recovery has proven that I've needed GA really for the steps. That is the most important piece of anything I've done in that fellowship other than be of service and, and being able to give it away. But realistically, the psychology work, which uncovers and deals directly with the, the childhood trauma, the epigenetic transgenerational type trauma, um, anything that's all the stuff that happens in relationships um, that has happened in relationships that have carried through uh, yeah, all, all of that stuff has needed to come together kind of holistically with other practices like yoga and meditation. Um, it's, it's a, for me, my experience, it's, it's been a holistic approach to recovery, not just GA, not just psychology, all those things linking together to try and change these neural pathways. Yeah. I, I think once you're a little bit awakened, it's hard to, to not continue. <laughs> Yeah, you, I cannot unsee what I've seen. And no. definitely the, the written work, especially through the steps and getting some home truths delivered to me by a psychologist, you know, they'll stay with me. And, and like, I, I do have to leverage off those uh, quite a bit to remind myself that there's no going back. You know, and that would be catastrophic insanity. Yeah, you can't you can't put the scales back on your eyes. It's um, yeah, once you've once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. So having that awakening and realizing that you know you needed to deal with you know your fears and resentments and um, harm to others, how did you go about using that in your life going forward? Yeah, it's become a real focus point. Certainly, I mean, it means. I amends mean, I'm still you know still working through today that that'll never stop I mean there's so many living amends but in terms of you know I've made as many direct amends as possible and again those are those are for me to make sure that I you know attempt to right the wrongs so they're just very much embedded embedded in life but I guess the 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 thing that I want to mention here though is that I did go through that process post doing the steps in 2017 but I also at a point in time, stepped away from the fellowship as well in 2018. You know, I did have a couple of events that came up that I did not deal with adequately and appropriately. And, you know, I did step away from the fellowship. I did stop aspects of my practice. And eventually, after another event in my life that caused trauma, you know, I fell back into that slippery slope of behavioural addiction, you know, even, you know, even after doing that work. so you know it's further um reinforced that you know to, I mean today i know it today but even then i didn't really understand the true nature of continuing to do the maintenance on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> really tough lesson to learn you know over a course of 18 months or so yeah so how did that affect your relationships in real terms yeah look ultimately in the in the dissolution of my last relationship um, which ended in September um, 2020. We did touch on this last time, but again, when you've got, well, myself, I'll speak of myself first, who, um, who clearly has moved back into a space of behavioural addictions and then perhaps with another person who, who's not necessarily dealing with their trauma, those two elements are never, are never going to uh, you know, be able to create a, you know, a wonderful existence. So um, things just completely blew up. Um, as can only be the case under under that type of um, living and thinking. So you mentioned you sort of were, were drawn back to GA. So what was it like coming back after being absent for 18 months or so? Look, it was coming back was, it ended up being quite easy for me, but it, but it was fantastic because one, I knew a lot of the people you know, still attending. So lots of familiar faces, I mean, obviously coming back onto Zoom was, was a little bit different, but it actually suited me as well. 
I think I said on my previous interview, it gave me access to more meetings. So coming back to GA was important, but again, in terms of recovery, you know, given, it, given it had taken me four years before, you know, when I first came into the, the program to start doing, to do the steps the first time, I, I got onto them straight away again, which, which was nice because it, all, all of a sudden my mind memory came back. It was like, Grant, you, you know what you need to do. You just, you just stop doing it. So yeah, once the fog cleared, um, you know, I got straight back into that. But as I've mentioned here, there were some key elements from a psychologist too that were absolutely crucial for me to understand why I did what I did to head back down that, that, that path of, of a spiritual malady. And it was self-abandonment. And that had never been really spoken about to my knowledge in my psychology sessions. But learning about that was, and making sure that I protect and nurture that inner child of mine, that was the absolute key for me in this period of recovery to put alongside everything else I'd learned previously because I imploded, basically throw everything up in the air and say, well, you know, I've had enough and I'm going to choose to escape again and not deal with something. Yeah. So, so do you want to talk about your escape? What, what were the sort of things that you did just getting out there? Yeah, look, it didn't start with gambling. There were things, there was, again, it started with procrastination more than anything else, rumination and not communicating in, in this space, uh, I guess, in my previous relationship too, it was very, very tense and lots of things that were, um, you know, yeah, not being spoken of. But, um, you know, I, I didn't really get down that path of, of, of gambling. It was almost like, it almost felt like it was the last resort. You know, I, again, it, it kind of relates to the white knuckling it again. You know, I was not doing all the things that, you know, I, I didn't hit gambling straight away. But it, it got me in the end. It was, there was this gradual build-up of internal pressure, and, I, and then I just crossed the invisible line. And look, I, I want to kind of preface what I've just said by saying that gambling has not is or has not actually been my dominant behavioural addiction in my life, and I didn't really acknowledge that for quite a long time. But in saying like I did, found, I found GA like. Another fellowship wasn't actually going to work for me in terms of the other behavioural addiction. GA has been the best connector for me in terms of people that, I, that can resonate. But then again, I've done the steps under AA. I'm not under, not under a, a GA structure. So that's why I identify as an addict in recovery, not necessarily a compulsive gambler. I can if I want. I choose not, generally not to. It's been really the whole running the whole gamut of addictions under one banner yeah i can understand that yep okay well listen we might take another short break
That last song was Desert Wind by Yantani Ngarakara of the First Sounds Volume 5 album, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab, for random chances, dances and cheeky glances, for rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, today I'm talking with Grant and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Grant, we just finished up before talking about coming back into GA after a bit of an absence and getting back onto the steps to, to catch up from where you left off, I guess, and resolve those issues that were causing relationship problems for you and causing you not to be an effective uh, member of society in real terms. So, you know, what's your recovery like now? What's it, what's it like on a day-to-day basis being a recovered member of Gambles Anonymous? Yeah, I certainly don't uh, label myself as a recovered compulsive gambler, that's for sure. Um, you know, an addict in recovery is generally what I use and because I know, I know that this is a day-to-day proposition or it can be a minute-to-minute proposition, but it's also the rest of, rest of my life. And when I say that, it's not daunting at all. It's actually um, it's quite uh, relieving and satisfying to be able to acknowledge that. You know, I'm, I'm very much at peace and ease with myself, and I, that's, that's what my recovery looks like. You know, there, there are very little narratives around you know, what happened and, and why and you know, dealing with any sort of drama other than just moving on with, with life. Like, you know, I, I, in my meetings, I don't particularly speak that much about my gambling experience as such because the reality is I, I found a pathway that, that allows me to express what recovery really looks like. And I think that's really important. I can choose if I wanted to go back and speak of some of my gambling experiences, but I can also do that with, you know, with a sense of humor or, or with that deep vulnerability as well and um, and heartfelt meaning it really depends on who's on the meeting like I, i'm largely there for connection and reminders that and, and the fact that these people are here we are very similar we share we, we share disease illness ailment yeah i think i'm able to give a lot more today but i don't want to get complacent about that too like you know just it's just a very much day-to-day living life on life's terms yeah so service is an important part of um, recovery and it's important, you know, to help people who, who come to meetings looking for help and identification. So what's service like for you? Service has been, it's certainly changed over the last six months. You know, I've been very busy with normal life activity in terms of work. Well, I mean, that's, you know, in a COVID world of work, which is sitting in front of screens, can make being a service actually quite difficult. So Basically, from the time I got back into the fellowship, Bill, I have made sure that I've done the work I need to do and then I've made myself accessible to either whoever wants to have contact or try and bring people together. There is is someone out there that has felt inclined to want to investigate a little bit of step work. I've certainly made myself available. And just being able to offer emotional support and stability for people within the fellowship, but that extends beyond as well. Being of service has meant just doing other things in the community as well as a result of not being you know, a self, self-centered and selfish person. I've been you know, 
as, as you've kind of mentioned, I, I have become more community focused um, and my existence is a lot quieter and a lot, a lot more peaceful, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as you start living again, then you, you're sort of thrown out into the community. You have much more contact with people. You're much more able to be able to relate to other people and for them to relate to you instead of, you know, as you said before, you had the headphones on. You weren't looking for connection. And I think that willingness to connect then allows you to talk about your experience with a lot of other people who may not necessarily be gamblers, but who benefit from understanding that gamblers can recover. Um, so COVID-19 has been a bit difficult for everybody. So have you noticed any changes in the fellowship during uh, the online meetings? Um, in my experience, it's been, it's been great. Like I, the, and that members actually find the, um, the online meetings you know, very, very good. I mean, I've, I've noticed there are a lot of people that have fallen away um, in the natural attrition um, and a lot of people don't like the online space. But my, my, you know, my own experience has been it's been very, very good for me. Um, I enjoy solitude and being in my own space. It's given, COVID has actually given me all of the room I've needed to focus, you know, on, on, on me. And, and, you, and everything that's sort of come out of that has been, as you've mentioned, about connection. Uh, I'm much more connected to self and therefore I'm able to share that with others. Yeah, I think that the difficulty a lot of people find with online meetings is the inability to connect with people afterwards, you know, to have that one-on-one, which in a, in a face-to-face meeting is, is quite easy just to go up to somebody and talk to them. But it's not, it's not really a an option for a, a zoom meeting so how's that worked for you um it, it's mean just a more focus on my i've been more focused on my style of communication as well yeah look it is i'm not going to say that i prefer face-to-face to be honest um because i've been very comfortable in this space but yeah there is a, a difference being in the physical presence of someone and i i, I do like that but like recovery, you've got to just you've got to work with what you've got and what you've got accessible to you. Because once you start thinking, you know, have these limiting beliefs again that you need to be in a face-to-face in order to get fellowship, that's not what recovery looks like to me. You know, I've had I have met people, members, you know, face-to-face, um, you know, in between lockdowns, and I have spent some time with members in a physical sense, you know, post as well. But my, my narrative around it and thinking around it is that, yeah, I've, I've got to use whatever's at my disposal because I certainly did all of those. I used whatever I could at my disposal in a negative way to stay in addiction. So, again, that's the, the flipping of the script again. You've got to be adaptable, teachable, and open and willing and honest to do whatever you actually can that's not detrimental to yourself or anybody else. Yeah, can't disagree with that. Um, so what about newcomers? Have, have you found uh, newcomers can uh, connect as well over Zoom? Yeah, I've seen plenty of newcomers come in and you know, obviously being a returning member as well. And it's been wonderful to see a lot of newcomers come and stay. And, and I, yeah, I, I do believe that many or the majority of them do connect with others. Yeah, given my experiences that, you know, my, my recovery is, say, like this time around, again, getting into steps early. Sometimes there are narratives around, okay, if you're not ready, you're not ready. Well, I was never, ever, I mean, I was always ready to go and gamble, you know, or, or do something of an addictive, in a, an addictive space. So I, I honestly don't, you know, time can, you may well need time to think about things, but... I just don't muck around these days. Again, like if anything does come up in my life, you know, I've got to really deal with that because the other, I know what the, you know, what the feeling is like when you carry it forward and leave it, it festers. And so I, I don't think I share the same view as, as maybe others or many other people in the fellowship, but I would, um, I would be getting onto as much as you can as you possibly could. But again, that's just my experience. Yeah. 
in face-to-face, a lot of people come, but not a lot of people stay. And it's a bit harder to gauge on Zoom meetings whether people are actually coming and staying unless they come back to the same meeting. There's more, I guess there's more chance of them going to a different meeting in Zoom, in online meetings. So do you feel that people are able to to stick to it as much as they used to or or better? I I think so. By the people that I've seen on... um seen on on the zooms and zoom meetings consistently you know there are a lot of people that keep keep turning up which is wonderful yes there are people that 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 don't and there are others that have not and maybe they're going to physical i I don't know whether or not that equates to a better recovery say you know two years ago five years ago ten years ago i think historically the rates of recovery are actually pretty low um and and they are receding i think it's a very stigmatized and marginalized group but uh but nonetheless, it's it's so it's so important if you can latch on and stick in there long enough. And generally, the light bulb comes on, but it just depends on how, how bright it, it it comes on for you. Yeah, well, that's one of the good things about staying around, seeing people where the light bulb comes on, and their lives change, uh, their thinking changes, and their actions change. Yeah, which is good. So, does GA offer you a sort of a, a pathway forward? Are you are you sort of happy that it will meet your needs going forward? It is meeting my needs, and the needs that are being met is is really like simply it's it's my avenue to connect with 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 people um, that I can resonate with um, regarding you know these topics around gambling and and all the things that come under you know, come under that umbrella. Look, I don't see myself. Um, you know, I, I don't have a vision of, of, of what that what that pathway will look like for me in GA other than continuing to have a desire to stay stop from gambling, continue to do some to do meetings and continue to connect with people. Yeah. So what sort of things does GA challenge you on? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I again I am I'm I am honest about this in, in meetings too. And um, you know, and they're things that not, I don't think they necessarily need to be reconciled within me because I think they are. I, I'm not there. You know, it's not a popularity contest. I've said previously in, in meetings, you know, it's not that I don't, I don't expect everyone to like me at, at all. I'm, I'm, I am there for me, but I am quite passionate about making sure that like there is a strong message of recovery. And I think it's consistent with, again, I can't unsee you know, what I've seen in the work that I've done and I know, and I know that I've done it before, and then fall away. I need to come back, and that's just been part of my journey to, you know, to get to this point of recovery as well. But it looks like going forward, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Anything could happen, and anything's possible. But even that mindset, like previously, you know, I had the suicidal ideation. So again, that's complete, you know, flipping the script of life. <laughs> uh, so that that, that too um, reflects my mindset. I, I just hope. You know, if, if people do identify as having a problem or they feel like they you know, are struggling in that space, then you know, there's always going to be a seat at the table of GA and there's always going to be someone there, I believe, that will, you know, with an outreached hand, with a kind word and, um, and, and, a, and an ear to listen. And that's how it really started for me. But, yeah, there's just, there is a lot of work. Uh, that needs to be done, you know, post that initial meeting. But without it, again, I would have had no chance to recover. Yeah. So how do you cope with people who won't recover? I'm talking about acceptance here. Somebody who's obviously, you know, doing things that are damaging to their situation but won't look at the alternative. They're coming to GA but they won't, well, I guess I'll use the word listen. They might listen but they don't understand it's uh, it's a perennial issue, and you know it's trying to nurture those people to consider something else. Yeah, look, to be to be honest, I mean that that stuff. Um, it, I'm much better at it these days. It, it does tug on my heartstrings, and I, I know today, like in terms of acceptance, like I can look at that that instance or that person with compassion and empathy because the truth is, I was there. And I know what that feels like. And recovery is really different. It's really difficult, Bill. I mean, it really is. I mean, it is certainly, well, my, it's been so bloody difficult for me 
but the rewards of what I've felt, you know, internally and the way in which I, I know that even this time around, like I, I've, you know, I, I didn't, so I, I mean, I will share this. I mean, I've been, in, I've got myself into a position where, you know, I've been able to offer, you know, you know a room or a meal, always my, you know, always a call or a chat because I just know how difficult it is. And I, I, I just, I, I know the struggle, but I, I also know the joy as well of um, being able to carve out a, a much better life and a very simple life. It's not, not flashy at, at all. It's just very, very basic. And I, to, to be able to live by a, a much stronger moral code and you know, with integrity and self-respect and dignity is, I, I wouldn't give that up for anything today. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that would have helped you recover sooner? <laughs> or is it just life? Uh, I mean, if there was a pill to <laughs> basically change my thinking, um, I mean, I, my, one of my narratives was like, if I, you know, if I was able to give myself the hiding of a life, um, which is not, not, again, not the answer. If I was able to access something within me, within me sooner to, to, that was compelling enough, I mean, look, it, it really did take someone to show me a message that I hadn't seen before that really kick-started what recovery really looks like for me. Pull off the wagon, I get back on it. I still had lessons to learn around what's going on inside me. So it's really, I think it's really just digging, the ability to be able to dig down deep, but maybe that requires someone else to, impartial perhaps, to pull you aside and say, hey, look, if you are you really struggling with something, you can tell me it's a safe space to do so. Um, being vulnerable, it's, it's all those types of things I think that have really helped me uh, and, and would have helped me a lot sooner if I had those tools. Yeah, agree. Okay. If anybody's listening who'd like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on 03 9696 or go online at gaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings and phone contacts throughout Australia. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Grant for sharing his gambling and recovery story with us and talking about how being a member of Gamblers Anonymous helped him. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be back again. Cheers. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll hear from Beck, who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, talking about her journey of recovery from alcoholism. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.